Hi there. You're listening to Lindisfarne Anglican Church's Sermon Podcast, a place where you can hear God's Word preached if you weren't able to join us at one of our services during the week. My prayer for you today is that as you listen to this message, you'd be challenged, encouraged, and equipped to live as a disciple of Christ in the world. May God richly bless you as you listen to this message today. Well, I was, um, during the week, thinking about uh, a, a good movie that I could uh, uh, open up that sort of had uh, what I wanted to say, and I thought, you know what, the best movie I can think of is a movie called The Sixth Sense. You might have seen it. Uh, I looked up what year it was released. 1999. Oh, gee, that made me feel a little bit old. Uh, and uh, last, it's a, it's a last century movie, but if you haven't seen it, I'm about to wreck it for you. Uh, And uh, I decided that that was okay because it's a 20-year-old film uh, and therefore it's not my fault if you never got around to seeing it yet. Uh, If you you have seen it, you'll know that you basically watch this movie, The Sixth Sense, uh, starring Bruce Willis. You watch the whole movie thinking that Bruce... Willis is helping this poor young boy uh, who thinks that he sees dead people. Uh, And you go through the movie thinking, isn't it nice that Bruce Willis is helping this child until you get to the end of the movie and you realise that actually Bruce Willis is dead and it totally blows your mind. I remember the first time I watched the movie, like my mind has never been blown again like it was in The Sixth Sense by any other film. It's a brilliant twist, totally unexpected, and yet you can see it actually throughout the movie each time we had little clues and things that could have picked us up on the fact that Bruce Willis was actually the one who was dead. And when you watch the movie a second time, you can actually see that there are these hints for us to pick up on. Well, what we see today, having arrived in the New Testament with the coming of Christ, the kind of climax of the story so far, we see with the coming of Jesus a bit of a twist We see in Jesus one man who brings the kingdom of God in himself and whom we can receive the kingdom of God through faith. And and that's not exactly what we're expecting. It's certainly not what the people in Jesus' day were expecting when they were thinking about what God was going to do to bring the kingdom of God to bear in their lives. They were expecting the rebuilding of the nation Israel. They were expecting a a, a human king to come and liberate them from Roman rule. They were expecting a nation that would retake the promised land and rule it under God. And that's not at all what God does. What actually comes is a better and more brilliant fulfilment of the promises of God. And just like in the movie The Sixth Sense, actually, once Jesus does come and shows us how he fulfills the promises of God, we actually see that actually this is what, it, what the prophets, what the Old Testament was pointing to after all. We can see that if we had had eyes to see, it was there for us to notice the whole time. Jesus is like the key that unlocks the promises of God. 
You'll remember that the Old Testament ends with the prophets, these sometimes strange uh, people who went around and who had basically two messages, judgment and hope. Judgment for the people of God because they have failed to live up to God's standards. They have not done what God said and so they face the judgment of God. And ultimately the story of the Old Testament unfolds. The people of God are kicked out of their land because they don't live up to God's holy standards. But as they come with judgment, they always come with hope. Hope that God has not forgotten his promises to Abraham. Hope that God is still going to make good on them. That there will still be a kingdom of God. That God's people will live in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so the prophet Malachi, the final prophet in our Old Testament, the last book you read before you turn the page and get to Jesus, says... I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. This is where the Old Testament leaves us. A few hundred years before Jesus arrives. But it leaves us anticipating something. And the New Testament starts. Our New Testament starts with Matthew. But most likely the first book written is Mark. And how does it begin? It begins with a man calling people to repentance to get ready for the one who will come. The New Testament starts in the Gospel of Mark by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. I will send my messenger ahead of you, verse 2, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And Mark tells us this is John the Baptist. This is what he does. He's the fulfilment of that first part of the prophecy of hope that God is going to do something. John the Baptist came, verse 4, and preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then we read Jesus comes. And at the end of our New Testament reading today, we read that he has come and that he said, the kingdom of God, verse 15, has come near, repent and believe the good news. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. It is here. Repent and believe. The hope that the prophets foretold has come. And it hasn't come by God returning to his box in a building. But it's come with God coming in the flesh. In fact, in John's Gospel, we read that, uh, those famous verses, you might know them. The Word became flesh, John 1.14, and dwelt among us. And we often think about how remarkable that is, that God would come and dwell among us in the person of Jesus. But what's even more remarkable is the Greek word there for dwell is actually tabernacle. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the verb tabernacle. So the, the, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us is how it would read literally. And of course you see the connection there, don't you, with the Old Testament where God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle, in the tent. And here we see John deliberately drawing a connection between the person of Jesus and the tabernacle. That Jesus comes and he is God's presence with us, just as the tabernacle was. 
This is an amazing thing that God is doing in Jesus. And as Vaughan Roberts, who's an English minister, reflects on this, he says, All the promises of the kingdom of God are fulfilled in Jesus. He is God's people, he is God's place, and he is God's rule and blessing. I want us to take a look now and see how those things that we've been talking about week after week after week, the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing, how those things find their fulfilment in Christ. Let's take the first part, God's people. We've seen, haven't we, as we've unpacked the story of the Old Testament, how God's people have failed. Adam failed in the Garden of Eden. He failed to live up to that role he was called to. He was God's image bearer. He was meant to rule the the world under God's reign and he failed. He decided to do it on his own and he was kicked out of the garden with his wife Eve. Likewise, we've seen Israel's failure. We've seen failure all the way through. Abraham uh, had moments of failure. Every single uh, hero of the Old Testament uh, is not blameless. And ultimately Israel fails to be God's holy people shining as a light from the land of Canaan because they don't follow God's rules. And they too, like Adam, exiled from the garden. They are exiled from the promised land. Well, what we see in Jesus is the true Adam and the true Israel. Jesus comes and does what these men and these people could never do. Jesus bears God's image perfectly. He, born as a baby, sleeps, weeps, gets tired. He even dies. He lives the kind of life you and I are going to live. And yet he does it in perfect obedience. Unlike Adam, he does not sin. He does not succumb to the temptations that are placed before him. He perfectly obeys God and therefore he's the only person who's ever lived who doesn't deserve banishment. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5. About how Jesus fulfills what Adam was supposed to. Likewise, we see how uh, Jesus Uh, lives out the kind of life Israel was called to, to be that light to the nations, to show people what it looked like to live as God's people. And in fact, as you trace the story through Matthew's Gospel, it's quite remarkable. In Matthew's Gospel, we read how Jesus, after he's born, has to flee to Egypt for safety, to avoid being killed by Herod. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound a little bit like how God's people had to flee to Egypt to avoid dying from famine back in Genesis. And we read that uh, he stays there until the death of Herod in Matthew chapter 2. And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus comes back from Egypt into the promised land. And interestingly, in Matthew chapter 4, what happens to Jesus next as he, as, he, as he returns from Egypt and grows up and is about to start his ministry? He spends time in the wilderness. We heard about it in Mark's Gospel in our reading today. And as he spends this time in the wilderness, temptation after temptation placed before him. 
And we know what happened to Israel in the wilderness, don't we? They build golden calves, they whinge about this, that and the other. They're pathetic. They refuse to trust God. They don't enter the promised land on first attempt. Jesus, in his 40 days in the wilderness, fully trusts God and does not fail. He trusts God completely and never gives in to temptation. And then as he returns from the wilderness, the very next thing in Matthew chapter 4 that he does is call 12 disciples. Again, does it sound familiar? The 12 tribes of Israel. He calls these 12 disciples as he makes a deliberate statement that in his ministry, he is rebuilding the people of God based on a new covenant. And so he says in Matthew 21, I tell you that Verse 43, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, from those who think they get into it via birth, and be given to a people who will produce its fruit. Unfortunately for Israel, their story continues to be one of rejection of God. And so God says, my promise will be fulfilled through Abraham My promises to Abraham will be fulfilled through those who trust in Christ. And through Christ, Abraham will give birth to a spiritual nation of all tribes and tongues who trust in Jesus by faith. And so again, Paul reflects on this in Romans 4 and says, The promises come by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring." He is not uh, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Jesus is the true Adam and the true Israel. He is God's person. What about God's place? How is Jesus a land, a garden? How does Jesus fulfil this promise of the kingdom? Well, you know that in both the garden and in the promised land... The people of God enjoy the presence of God. They enjoy the presence of God uh, in the garden as God walks in the garden with them and in the promised land as God dwells in the tabernacle or the temple. And we see how Christ is God come near to us. We've already talked about this a bit, haven't we? In John 1.14, God came and uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. But as Jesus gets about his ministry that we read about in the Gospels, we see that he identifies himself with the temple. So in John's Gospel, Jesus is going to uh, explore, uh, goes into the temple. There's uh, corruption, money lenders ripping people off and he overturns the, the tables and people get very frustrated with him and they say by what authority do you do this and he says verse 19 destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days what did Jesus mean well John helpfully spells it out a few verses later the temple he had spoken of was his body Jesus identifies himself as the temple as the place where God where people go to meet with God And in fact, when Jesus describes himself as the living water, later in John's Gospel, 
in John chapter 7. He does this during the Feast of the, ta- of the Booths, the Festival of the Booths, which was a time when they remembered the promise that the prophets made in Ezekiel about how from the temple would come living water. Jesus says, I am the living water. Come, drink, and you will never be thirsty. He identifies himself as this temple, the place where God can be met with. He is God's true person. He is God's true place. And he is the bringer of God's true rule and blessing. We read that in Jesus, the new covenant is established. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil them. Jesus' life and ministry is one of perfect obedience to the law. And in doing so, allowing those of us who trust in him to enjoy the blessings of the law. You see, with Jesus, he is the only one who's ever lived who did not need to face the curse of the law. Remember back in Deuteronomy, Moses says, right, do what God says, blessing. Don't do what God says, curse. And the prophets came and they reinforced that. You haven't done what God says. Moses warned you about this. You're going to be judged. Maybe if you turn back, you can be blessed. And yet, judgment comes. Jesus comes and he's the only person who lives in blessing, who does what God says perfectly. But how does Jesus' life pan out? Well, he's cursed. He dies. In fact, he dies in one of the worst possible ways. If someone is guilty of a capital offence, Moses says in Deuteronomy, and is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole or a cross... You must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Jesus dies on a pole, on a cross. He dies a cursed death. It's interesting, isn't it, at the moment, because in our city, uh, we're currently installing some temporary crosses. Uh, You've seen them on the waterfront. I've seen them a couple of times. They're back from last year, but they're being flipped up the other way. Uh, So last year they were upside down. This year they're the right way up. And Mr Carmichael, who runs uh, Dark Mofo, uh, has said that these are symbols of, of, of torture and pain and suffering. And he's right. They are. And for some reason, some Christians have decided to get offended about these uh, symbols being placed all over the city that represent torture and suffering and shame. Which is funny when you think about it, because, I mean, look, we have a giant one right there. And guess what? It is a symbol of torture and shame and pain. That is a symbol of cursed of accursed men and women, of accursed man. Jesus, cursed for us so that we could be blessed. 
Paul says it like this in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Do you see? Jesus dies a cursed death so that we can live a blessed life. He dies to deal with the problem of sin that has never been dealt with up until this point in the story of God and his people. It is sin that has reared its ugly head again and again and again and again. And it is sin that has caused so much pain and grief and suffering. And it is sin that has caused God's people to experience judgment and curse. And it is sin that God's people cannot deal with on their own. And it is sin... That God says he's going to fix. That's the message of hope the prophets bring. And it is sin that Jesus dies on the cross to take away. Jesus puts sin and shame and death to death on the cross. So that through faith, Jew and Gentile can live in the blessing that he deserves. Because he lived the perfect life. He trusted God perfectly. So he deserves blessing. And yet God says that is ours to enjoy through faith in his. We swap places. It is called by some the great exchange. Martin Luther writes... This is the mystery which is rich in divine grace to sinners, wherein by a wonderful exchange of our sins, where our sins are no longer ours but Christ's, and the righteousness of Christ is not Christ's but ours. He has emptied himself of his righteousness that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it, and he has taken our evils upon himself that he might deliver us from them. In the same manner as he grieved and suffered in our sins and was confounded, in the same manner we rejoice and glory in his righteousness. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for the sins, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. In Jesus, we find peace, forgiveness, a restored relationship with our Father in heaven. And it's a beautiful thing indeed. We've also seen, haven't we, how God called his people to serve and follow a king. We saw how... That was fraught with difficulty in the Old Testament because the kings were sinful men who constantly failed to do what was right. And yet in Jesus we have one who says, I am the king, I bring the kingdom, the kingdom of God has come near. Paul says of of Jesus, Regarding his son, who as his, to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God, or the king, in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus comes from the line of David. 
He is the king whom God promised would rule on the throne forever. In Jesus' death, he is mocked as the king of the Jews. And yet, as that sign was placed there to mock, it spoke great truth. That there on the cross died the king of the world for me and for you. The story of the Bible. The story of God's kingdom, of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing is the story ultimately that points us to Jesus, who is God's man, who is God's place and who brings God's rule and blessing to bear on our lives. The road out of judgment that the prophets left us with last week and into the hope they promised is faith. In Jesus Christ. He has taken the judgment we deserve. So that we can live in the blessings he deserves. This is the heart of our faith. The great exchange. That we in fact through faith in Christ enter into who Jesus is. That we can be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing because we enter into the life of Christ through faith. And that he enters into our life in his death and resurrection for us. If you want to be God's person, if you want to enjoy God's blessing, if you want to enjoy God's presence... The invitation is simply, come to the King, come to Jesus, the one who was cursed for you, and be blessed as he was blessed. Let me pray for us. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to this message today. I hope you were encouraged by God as he spoke to you by his Holy Spirit. Please head to our website if you'd like more information about our church, www.lindisfarneanglican.org.au or like us on Facebook by searching Lindisfarne Anglican. We are a church for Lindisfarne, making disciples of Jesus. God bless.